We all have the power to build a better world and shape the future into one that is cleaner, safer, healthier, and equitable for us all. But we can't do that alone. I'm Tariq Lalemi, and this is People and Planet, a podcast from Expo 2020 Dubai's program for People and Planet, where changemakers from all over the world break down what it will take to create a sustainable future for our planet. An important and vital topic to inspire other people to take action. journey through space and time. An extension of our natural wealth. It's us together. It's so beautiful. the latest offenders. Optimize women's contribution to security to build a brighter tomorrow. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Maggie Adarin-Pocock, MBE. Now that's her official title. But when I asked her to introduce herself, this is what she said. Uh, so my name is uh, Maggie Adairin-Pocock. I'm a space scientist and science communicator, and I love all things about space. Dr. Maggie is also the presenter of BBC's The Sky at Night. There is one celestial object that dominates our skies. A star that shines so brightly, it drowns out the light of all other stars in the universe. That star is, of course, the sun. A show that explores the fascinating world of space and astronomy, something she has been passionate about ever since she was a child. During Space Week at Expo 2020 Dubai this October, she hosted the People's Mission, an event which brought astronauts, space scientists, and astronomers together to inspire people from all generations to keep reaching for the stars. Salam alaikum. Uh, good morning, everybody. And um, uh, it's wonderful to be here. And uh, welcome to Expo 2020. And this is the People's Mission, uh, Citizens in Space Exploration. I must admit, just saying that gives me a, a real buzz. I'm so excited to be here. I will be your guide on this journey through space and time. And my name is Dr. Maggie Adairin-Pocock. Now, I think one of the important things is that this is a journey to be made by all the peoples of the world. And so I think it's a celebration and a joy that we make it together. So um, the title of this talk is um, Reaching for the Stars, but it's also about the power of a crazy dream. Because all my life, um, I have had a number of crazy dreams. Uh, And I want to tell you a bit about them. Now, back in her home in London, we got a chance to speak to her about her experience at the Expo, the wonders of the cosmos, and the vital role space exploration plays. So it's been a bit of a manic morning, but it's been, it's so lovely to speak to you. I so enjoyed the Expo. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be able to speak to you today for your time, your breath. We really, really appreciate it. So let's get started. Dr. Maggie, you're based in London. And you grew up in London in the 70s, and you're born a year before the moon landing. So I want to get a sense of what was that environment like? And really, how did it shape you and inspire you towards space exploration? As you said, I was born in sort of 1968. And 1969, the moon landings happened. So I was too young to remember the moon landings, but they played a vital role in my life. So growing up, I heard about sort of other trips to the moon and I was excited about them. And um, also um, growing up in the UK in sort of the late 60s, early 70s, it was quite interesting because when I went to school, I felt I didn't really belong because um, at school, the colour of my skin was sort of quite prominent. And so kids were coming up to me and saying, oh yeah, what, what are you you doing here, yo? Why don't you go back home? I said, but I live around the corner. <laughs> but also at home, when I was meeting my cousins, um, they were all sort of born in Nigeria and I was born here. And I was like, you don't speak Nigerian, you're a lost Nigerian. So I felt I didn't really fit into any world. But what I loved about space is um, when you look at uh, the globe from space, you don't see the barriers. You don't see, oh yes, you're from Nigeria, or you're from England. It's just sort of one globe. And I loved that. So space was an attraction in that way. Uh, and um, also, also, uh, I must confess, I used to love watching Star Trek and uh, sort of um, with uh, Captain Kirk and especially Nichelle Nichols, uh, Lieutenant Uhura, seeing her as a black woman as a key part of the team and an international team, people from everywhere exploring space together. That really sort of um, made me excited about space. Beautiful. And who are your, your non-fictional idols as well? 
I'd be curious to learn. So I have a number of sort of role models in my life. Uh, Firstly, my parents. Although my parents split up when I was four years old, both had a strong influence on me. My mum is a sort of a strong, powerful woman, a very independent woman. And I think I got that some of that from her. And my father was the one who encouraged me to sort of reach for the stars. As I was growing up, I would face various challenges um, through education and things like that. And my father was always the one encouraging me, saying, okay, it might take you longer, but you can still do it. Uh, but then going sort of further afield, hearing about people like sort of Yuri Gagarin, the first person to travel into space. He had a special place in my heart, especially later, because I found out that his birthday and my birthday, uh, we're both born on the 9th of March. So to me, that was sort of a, a bit of symmetry happening. And it was sort of in later years, I heard more about Neil Armstrong. And uh, growing up, I thought he was you know, sort of, you know, the right stuff, you know, sort of, you know um, sort of ex-military and sort of going into space. But he was a simple engineer. And I think the reason why he was the first person to land on the moon was because he was very calm in a crisis. So it's these sort of people. Uh, But as I've grown up, I've seen more uh, female role models like Mae Jemsen, the first black woman in space. I met her a few years ago and she was fantastic. And she came and gave me a hug. And uh, (laughs) I will remember that moment forever. (laughs) So I think I've been very lucky to have some fantastic role models out there. So as I moved around a lot, um, they just assumed that I was a bit dumb. And so I was put at the back of the class, you know, with the safety scissors and the glue. Now, keep her out of the way. And um, so there I stayed. So I had these crazy ideas about, you know, reaching for the stars, getting out there into space, you know, travelling the universe. And yet there I was at the back of the class. Now, one of the things I realised is that it's science that gets people out there into space. Science, engineering, technology. And so I, um, I used to pay a slightly more attention in the science class. And I remember sitting in a a lesson one day and um, um, the teacher asked a question. And the question was this. If one litre of water weighs one kilogram, what does one cubic centimetre of water weigh? Now, I sat there. Now, one of the things about dyslexics is I can't spell for toffee. You might even spot some spelling mistakes on my slides. But one of the things about dyslexics are we are very logical. And I sat there thinking, okay, I'm sort of at one cubic centimetre is a thousandth of a litre. A thousandth of a kilogram is one gram. So one cubic centimetre should weigh one gram. So I remember yeah, putting my hand up. Yeah, I got this one. And I remember looking around the classroom and no one else had their hand up. So I sort of put my hand down. But then the teacher looked at me and I thought, come on, you know, grab that opportunity, see where it takes you. So I put my hand back up and said, miss, is it one gram? And at that moment, oh, sorry. But it really was as if your heavenly angels started singing. <gasps> Little Maggie at the back of the class got that question right. If I can do that, what else can I do? <laughs> sorry, I'll, I'll quit on the evil laughter. But it was suddenly an opportunity. And so that sort of transformed my education. I started paying more attention in science classes. And as my science grades started coming up, my other grades went up as well. Now, it was hard work and sort of, a, 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 sort of a, 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 it took a lot of effort. But my grades started going up. Just going back to what you mentioned around that challenging environment at school, you'd mentioned at Expo 2020 that you have this superpower of dyslexia. I'm just wondering, like adding onto those layers of being in that kind of challenging environment, how did that positively affect you? In what ways did you really harness that superpower for for good and towards your life's calling? So it's quite interesting because with dyslexia, I used to say I suffer from dyslexia because when I was a child, I didn't know I had dyslexia. But all I knew is that I found reading and writing quite hard. And of course, when you're first in school, it's all about reading and writing. So as I realised I had dyslexia, I, I saw it as a detriment. But as I grew older, I realised sort of it's like the yin and the yang. There are some benefits I get out of dyslexia. Um, sort of communication is one of them. And um, sort of um, good 3D spatial awareness. Lots of dyslexics go into architecture. And also, I think just growing up with dyslexia, you learn how to tackle problems in a different way. So for instance, if I'm writing something and I get to a word and I can't spell it and the spelling checker doesn't recognise what I'm trying to say, you come up with a different word. And I think for dyslexics, that's the way we are sort of built in. We have that sort of resilience built in because we're always sort of tripping over ourselves. And so I think just by having dyslexia, it's given me the ability to sort of you know, come across a problem thinking, OK, I can't go that way. Let's find another way around. But I think the communication, before I realised I actually had dyslexia, I started moving my career towards communication because I felt I was better at communication uh, rather than sort of the written word. Although I do write books, which is a bit scary. <laughs> and you're continuing to write your story. And I'd be interested to know, you know, going back to between the embraces and hugs between idols 
and really being able to fit in many worlds within one world and really finding that sense of wonder within space and science at a young age. Is there a moment where you knew this was going to be your life's calling? Like this is what was really calling towards you as this pathway to the future that was really inviting you into this space of wonder and exploration? It's quite interesting because I think some people, some people have a sort of seminal moment to think, yes. But for me, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to go into space, which sounds very strange. But I think it's because of that excitement in my youth. And, and it's quite interesting because um, this sort of desire to sort of learn more about space, to get out there into space has been with me all my life. And um, sometimes it's sort of, I haven't talked about it to other people. So especially when I was at school sitting at the back of the class, when people asked me what I wanted to do and I was like, oh yeah, I I want to be a space scientist. Sometimes people will say, oh, Maggie, that's, I don't think you're going to do that. You know, astral, if you if you want to go into space, that's going to be really tough. Why don't you do something else? So for many years, I didn't tell anybody I wanted to go into space or I wanted to be a space scientist. And it's not until I sort of was able to get through um, the obstacle course that was my schooling and sort of come out the other end, that I started saying, oh, yes, I, I really love space and I'd love to do something in space. So um, I, the calling, I think, has been there from the beginning. And I think in that way, I'm quite lucky because by having such a sort of a big and sort of epic dream uh, it means that um, I have sort of a um, overcome those hurdles and sort of found ways round and, and sometimes I've fallen flat in the mud and there's sort of utter failure and it's been sort of horrible but I think the thing that's picked me up again is thinking oh well you know, there's that golden dream of getting into space and so if I can focus on that then I can sort of you know I can overcome this failure and keep on going so I think I'm quite lucky in that way from having that I like to call it the desire to aspire but that's got me when I was a very young age. And so it's helped me through um, some of the, the more difficult times. Beautiful. And you're someone who speaks to a lot of young people today. You plant the seed, I'm sure, of, uh, of that desire to aspire as well. And what, what would your advice usually be to young people who you see maybe are navigating that obstacle course, that you know maybe are not fully communicative of those wild dreams? Uh, what is your advice really to, to able to counter uh, maybe their colleagues, their classmates who are or maybe not giving the space for them to shine, uh, what would you say to them? So the title of the talks I usually give to young people is Reach for the Stars, no matter what your stars may be. So I think what I like to encourage people to do is think big and, and think crazy, because I think the bigger the dream and the crazier the dream, the more drive you have to reach it. And there will always be naysayers. The number of people in my life that said, that's not going to happen. I think by having the big dream, it means you can overcome it. And also it means you can, uh, I may never get into space. It's still my dream and I'm still hoping to get there. But I may never get into space, but by having that big dream, it has driven me. So I do want the kids to have a desire to aspire and to know that um, they have so much potential. Uh, If I could go back to myself and tell myself, you know, um, just off a few words. I was like, Maggie, the world is your creation. You create the world you want and the career you want. So it's sort of so believe in yourself. Because I think so often we sort of listen to the negative voices and sometimes the negative voices inside. And I have that too, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, should I really be here? But I think it's sort of overcoming that and having the big dream really helps that. <laughs> and you are someone who did create that world yourself when you're a young age. And I'd love to, to maybe invite you to tell us about your love story with telescope. <laughs> yes. And so, yes, um, my love story with telescopes begins when I was quite young. I used to watch a programme called The Sky at Night, which was hosted by a chap called Patrick Moore. And he had a sort of monocle, and he was very British. And, and this programme, is, it's the longest running science programme in the world. And I'm very honoured now that I host the programme. But as a child, I used to listen to him and he'd say what was in the night sky. And I'd always sort of go out. I was living in London and I'd go out and I'd sort of look and it was often cloudy and there's lots of light pollution. But I thought if I could get a telescope, then I could get closer to the stars and see what's out there. And I, I bought my first telescope when I was probably about 13. And we didn't have much money. We were living in what we call a council flat in England, which is sort of a um, sort of assisted accommodation because we didn't have much money. And um, I bought this telescope and it was, wasn't very good at all. It suffered from something called chromatic aberration, which means as the light goes through the telescope, it gets split into different colours. So I was really disappointed because um, this is all I could afford. But then I saw in a magazine a telescope making class. And this was sort of mind-boggling thing. You can make a telescope? And so I sort of went along to the class and I remember sort of knocking on the door and coming in and everybody else in the room was male. And uh, I think the average age was about 50. And there was me, sort of, you know, sort of 14 years old. 
But it's funny, I came in and they sort of, they were very welcoming. And what we had in common was uh, we wanted to get a better understanding of the universe by making our own instrumentation. So I used to go to the class, which I think was on a Tuesday night in a, at a local school. And um, they showed us how we could sort of uh, take two pieces of glass and you put an abrasive powder in between them. And then you put one piece of glass on top of the other and you start sort of uh, grinding away. And what happens is the glass underneath becomes sort of a uh, dome shaped and the glass above sort of becomes like a, a cave, concave. And if you keep on doing that, you end up with a spherical surface. Surface. But for a telescope, what you actually want is a parabolic surface because um, a parabola is a shape that brings light from a distance to a nice sharp focus. And so um, I used to work on it and then sort of measure it at the telescope making class. And uh, I used to sort of you know, sit in front of the TV, you know, watching Star Trek and making my own telescope. And eventually I was able to actually make a, uh, my, a telescope. I made a little housing for it and I was able to sort of you know, point it up at the night sky. And I'm a lunatic. I love the moon. And so to be able to see the craters of the moon with a telescope that I'd made with my own hands was almost magic. <laughs> but that led me to actually work on bigger telescopes later. So it's been a, a wonderful trajectory for me from making my own little telescope to working on some of the largest telescopes in the world. And in between, you graduated with a PhD in mechanical engineering from Imperial College London. You moved on to work for the Ministry of Defence on projects ranging from missile warning systems to landmine detection how did you kind of come full circle back to that first love of telescopes and end up working in the Gemini Observatory? When I um, finished university, I was writing up my PhD and I needed a job, uh, but there weren't many jobs going around. In fact, uh, many companies were um, sort of cutting people at the time. And it was um, a bit frustrating. It's like, finally, you know, I'm Dr. Maggie, ready to go out into the world. Uh, but there was no jobs available. But I applied to the Ministry of Defence. And because um, I've been doing um, optical instrumentation through my telescope, and through other things. And also my PhD was uh, measuring engine oils in very, very tiny contacts. So maybe a millionth of the width of a hair looking at what happens to engine oils in those conditions. Um, I was able to get a job um, working on an optical system looking at sort of uh, missiles going down a track as a missile warning system for pilots. So I did that for a while. But then I got involved in landmine detection because landmines are a devastating problem across the world. So I was doing all of that and it was very rewarding work, but my heart was lying out in the stars. And so I applied for a few jobs. Uh, one job was at La Palma in Tenerife on a telescope there. And they were looking for someone who did electronics. And unfortunately, I'm not very good at electronics. So that didn't work. But eventually I was able to get a job at University College London, um, sort of building an instrument to go on a big telescope. And uh, it was just mesmerizing for me because um, I was going to be working on the Gemini telescope, one of the largest telescopes in the world. And so I was able to make the transition from the Ministry of Defence, sort of working on landmine detection to a large ground-based telescopes, making instrumentation for that. So it was a challenging project. We were building a, an instrument that actually sat on the telescope and a sort of measured starlight and gave us an understanding of what was happening in the heart of stars. But it made my heart sing to do it because it was me getting close to my crazy dream of you know, reaching the stars. And could you give us a sense of perspective? How big are these telescopes and lenses? So if you buy a telescope to sort of a look, uh, do astronomy or even binoculars, they're generally made out of uh, lenses. But when you're talking about sort of 8.1 metres, um, one of the things that um, Isaac Newton came up with is you can have what we call a reflecting telescope. So rather than the light passing through a lens, what you do is you have a reflecting surface. And this is very useful because if you have an 8 0.1 meter lens, the quality of the glass has got to be amazingly good. And it's hard to get glass which doesn't have sort of a sort of discontinuities or sort of you know, impurities. But if you have a mirror, you just reflect off the surface. And so the glass doesn't have to be of that good quality. And so and this is why and we have these sort of huge telescope mirrors. Going into the telescope dome, it is amazing because it is like a, a, a temple to science because you've got the eight-metre telescope in the centre and then you've got this huge dome that sits around it. And then as the sun sets and we get ready to do the observing, they open up the telescope dome. The dome's been air-conditioned all day to keep the temperature sort of cool. And then they open up the dome and you see sometimes the purple sky as the sun sets and the stars start to appear in the sky. 
And uh, I've actually been actually standing on the telescope as it moves around to take its first observation. And it's just a thrill because it's like a roller coaster ride because this is eight metres of telescope swinging round to look at the first star of the night. And it's just sort of amazing. If anyone gets an opportunity to go to one of these large telescopes, take it because it is amazing. And it's an amazing feat of engineering too. So to be there was just magical. <laughs> and in that temple of science and in that prayer of observing the stars, what did you learn from your work in the Gemini Observatory, both within yourself and really linking to, to what you shared of your challenges growing up and how you flourished, but also really what did you learn from the science of that work? Yes. So in terms of um, in terms of actually my work, um, I was the project manager um, making an instrument called BHROS, which stands for Bench Mounted High Resolution Optical Spectrograph, which is a bit of a mouthful. But what um, BHROS was doing was it was taking the light gathered by the telescope. That light was fed via an, opti- um, an optical fibre uh, to BHROS. And then we took that light and sort of stretched it into its rainbow colours. And then we could analyse the light by doing this, um, this rainbow, this spectra, you can see little absorption bands. And these bands indicate what chemical reactions are happening in the heart of the star. So again, it getting me closer to my crazy dream of understanding the stars. And sometimes we were looking at old stars and seeing how they evolve. With a telescope, a telescope is like a time machine because it takes a finite time for light to travel from the star to reach the telescope. And to me, the magic is if you look through a telescope, that light has travelled billions of kilometres to go into your eye. And with the telescope, uh, the instruments we were building, that light has travelled billions of uh, miles, billions of kilometres to get to our instrument. But because it takes a finite amount of time for the light to travel from the star to the instrument, we are effectively looking back in time. We should never look directly at the sun, but it takes a light from the sun about four and a half minutes to reach us. So as we see the sun, we're seeing it as it was four and a half minutes ago. Uh, With light, sometimes we're looking at a light that's travelled for thousands of years, but also the project itself was quite uh, challenging. I was the project manager managing a team of about 17 people. It was nice because it was a team uh, which was quite diverse. So we had sort of software engineers, we had electrical engineers, we had optical sort of uh, designers, we had mechanical designers to support the optics. So we were all working together. And sometimes funding was uh, tight. And I remember um, sometimes I'd use my credit card to buy instrumentation or to buy the things we needed just to keep the project going. So again, I think it was that resilience coming in that, you know, um, we, it was trying to keep the project going no matter what. So towards the end, I was juggling more and more things. (laughs) But it made me understand uh, the instrument more. So as a project manager and then sort of as a systems engineer. So uh, it was sort of a certain amount of resilience to keep the project going. And then we eventually delivered it uh, to um, sort of a telescope in Chile. And I was there in the basement putting the instrument together. And I used to see it as my sort of my baby because I had worked on this instrument for about four years before we delivered it to Chile. So it was something sort of very close to my heart. And the first night where we actually got sort of starlight going through the instrument, and we actually got some results. It was sort of, yes, the culmination of sort of four years' work coming together. <laughs> and what was it like working in that isolation there in, in the remote Chilean mountains? It's funny because it it was beautiful. I was there on my own. And so I actually had a little house on the mountain and um, it was sort of a a bit of a way down from the telescope. And so every day I would sort of drive up to the telescope and work on the telescope and then sometimes into the night because at first I was working during the day sort of putting the instrument together. But then as the instrument was coming together, then we'd start working at night. So actually gathering the starlight and and testing out the instrument. And so I'd stay up on the mountain sort of 24-7. But on a Saturday morning, I would go down the mountain and pick up supplies. And um, Chile is a fantastic country and everybody was very warm and welcoming. So I'd go down and sort of gather supplies and then drive back up to the mountain. So um, the local town was La Serena, which was by the sea. And that would often be sort of cloudy and, and covered. So you couldn't see very much. But as you drove up the mountain, the skies would become clearer and clearer. Sometimes I would sort of sit out on my balcony. I'd make some food, look at the stars and toast the moon maybe because the moon was my companion up there <laughs> so it all sounds a bit crazy but it was beautiful <laughs> lunatic in the in the best sense of the word as you mentioned incredible and and i just want to go back to something you shared which i find incredible that you had to cover many of these costs yourself and really take uh not just two or three steps forward yourself but really a hundred and beyond and 
you know, you going back to saying that there weren't that many black female scientists and role models, you know, growing up and who are doing this work and the barriers that are really there to, to enter into this space. Do you find that that's still something that's common for female scientists, you know, entering to the field, especially for black female scientists? Uh, could you speak a bit more to you know, your just perceptions of that space, even the challenges that still exist? Um, or what you see are maybe breakthroughs in the sector? So I think there are definitely still challenges in that sector for women, for people from ethnic minorities as well. So there are still barriers. Unfortunately, uh, I think here in the UK and in other parts of the world, the space industry is still very male dominated. And it's quite interesting because um, I was speaking, I, I do um, lots of uh, sort of uh, public speaking, sort of encouraging uh, sort of encouraging girls to go into science, well, encouraging everybody to go into science, but showing that girls, that there's a a place for them there too. Uh, but also speaking to sort of people already in the field and sort of progressing in the field. And sometimes um, when you sort of speak to people, sometimes the barriers are, are external and people say, oh no, you can't do that. Or oh, you're a girl. Yeah, what do you know about science? So these sort of stereotypes. And I think that's the challenge to break those stereotypes. And I, I think in terms of that, um, as scientists, we can go out and speak to people, but also I think it's a societal change. Uh, you still have, um, um, when my daughter, who's 11 now, was growing up, I'd go to a toy shop and they'd have you know, boys' toys, which were engineering and putting things together and cars. And then there'd be girls' toys, which were sort of the, the nurturing, the dolls and things like that. And so right from the start, we almost have this divide. And so it's trying to break those barriers down. So I think these are societal changes that we need. Also, we need sort of more role models to show, you know, if I can do it, so can you. But also sometimes the barriers are internal, you know, you know uh, as a woman or uh, as a black woman, you know, uh, should I be going into this field? Can I, can I succeed? So it's breaking down barriers internal and external, the imposter syndrome and things like that, which we all suffer from. So I heard someone describe it as the sticky floor. And so it's trying to tackle it on both levels and throughout society. So it's a big challenge to take on. But unfortunately, we've come a long way, but we're not there yet. I saw a horrible statistic the other day that showed women working in the space industry. And it showed that there's a huge pay gap for many women working in the space industry. And the pay gap gets worse the higher you go up. So it's trying to sort of tackle these problems and um, sort of make things uh, just more balanced. And different people uh, get excited by different things. So young boys wanting to go into nursing, girls wanting to go into engineering. It's trying to show that all of these things are for everyone. It depends on what makes your heart sing. Not It shouldn't depend on the colour of your skin or what gender you are. So we have a way to go, but we have come a long way. So I'm heartened, but there's still work to do. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you mentioned the importance of the BBC's The Sky at Night show for you. And, you know, in that lens, how important was that moment culturally, personally, and also sort of socially for, for aspiring young female scientists in the country when you were tapped to host the show? Um, and you were invited uh, to really take that mantle. Yes. So for me, it was very interesting uh, because Patrick Moore, who had uh, done the programme, I think the programme started in, I think it was 1957. It was just before Sputnik went up. And it was only meant to last for sort of a couple of weeks. But Patrick Moore did the programme for 57 years. So he was the longest running science presenter, well, the longest running TV presenter in the world. And when he passed away, there was talk, you know, should we continue with the programme? Because it was very much Patrick Moore's programme. And so there was talk about sort of possibly stopping the programme. And there was an opportunity there. And I must admit, I, I did express an interest in sort of hosting this, because this is the programme that sort of helped me get a better understanding of the night sky. So the idea of sort of trying to do that for other people, encourage more people to come on board and sort of understand what's happening out there, seemed like a wonderful opportunity for a science communicator. So I did say I'd love to do the programme. And um, when I actually got offered the job, I was sort of elated. I couldn't believe it. But there was some talk in the press that the BBC were just being politically correct. But, you know, who is this woman? You know, they're only giving it to her because you know, she's black and female. And at the time, I was fairly well established as a science communicator. So I'd been going out and speaking to school kids. I've done sort of lots of news programs. And so the idea that, um, that I was just getting it because I was black and female was very disappointing. But it's quite interesting because when I started doing the program, I, I think a few people were saying, oh, well, we're not sure about this. This is, you know, this is a change. But I've been doing it for seven years now and people come up to me in the street and say, oh, we love what you do on the sky at night. Thank you so much. You know, we really enjoy it. 
And I think this is the fear, really. People fear change because it is a sort of almost a leap into the unknown. And when people are used to something, when things change, they don't know what it's going to be like. And I find that with the sort of project management of people see me and say, hey, she's the project manager. What's she going to be like? And so it's sort of just saying, OK, you know, I'm a project manager just like anyone else. So it was an interesting transition. Uh, as I say, I've been doing it for seven years now, so I think I'm well established in the role. But um, uh, it was quite terrifying for me too, because you had a presenter who'd been doing it for 57 years and then I sort of come along and say, hello. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was terrifying, but fantastic at the same time. <laughs> So just on that front as well, why is it so important to be a science communicator? Why is it important for you that science is accessible? And maybe also to invite you to explain what is really the mission behind your organization, uh, Science Innovation Limited? I truly believe that science plays a major role in all our lives. And I think through the COVID pandemic, we've seen how that really plays out. The fact I'm speaking to you sort of across the world, that sort of technology at work, the looking for the vaccines, um, sort of that is sort of technology at work, it's science at work. And it's quite interesting because when I go out to speak to kids to encourage them into science, I don't, I don't, it would be scary if all the kids became scientists. So that's not the goal. But I think the goal is for everybody to be aware of science because science is too important just to be left to the scientists. There there are ethical questions to be asked, moral dilemmas, how we use science is so important. And so um, I, I like to explore that with kids. So even if they don't want to be scientists, just having an awareness of science, I think is critical for everyone. And so that was my goal with Science Innovation Limited, the company I set up. I realised that um, I was sort of working as a space scientist, which seemed like a really cool title. You know, I'm a space scientist. And um, what I was realising is that I couldn't recruit people to work in space science. As a space scientist, not only are we making a, a real difference to the world, we're also sort of understanding the universe, but also um, changing people's lives and making a, a sort of a, a, having an impact. And so I was sort of working as a space scientist. The pay is very good. I get to travel around the world. It's a good job. And so what I want to do is go and encourage people to actually consider this as a job. Um, one of the things that I found is um, when I go out and speak to school kids and I say, I did a degree in physics, they say, oh, you did a degree in physics? Oh, we thought you'd be a physics teacher because they don't make that link between physics and doing other things out there. They see physicists as maybe going to work in academia. They see physicists as going to work as teachers. But as a physicist, people go and work in the city. They go and work in medicine. They go and work in so many different areas, but they can't see that clear career path. So what I wanted to do was use my career as an example of the many different things I've done and show that getting a degree in physics can lead to so many different paths. And so that's what I try and do with my company. Try and in, in, I see it as a, a three-pronged uh, sort of approach. Firstly, I want to talk about sort of um, role models. Role models are, are very interesting because when someone first suggested I was a role model, I got a bit freaked out. <laughs> because I don't see myself as a role model. But I think I was wrong because to be a role model, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to have something you're excited about. And for me, sharing a sort of a, my knowledge of science with other people in a, a, a way that people can understand is that's what makes me excited. And so, um, so we need more role models. And it's nice to show sort of female role models, role models from ethnic minorities, just show that science is for everyone. And at the expo, that's one of the things I was, uh, I was trying to explore. If you look back in time, everybody has looked up at the stars across the world, every culture. And so it is our heritage. And in the UAE, um, you've got the Hope Probe going around Mars at the moment. And uh, you're setting up sort of a biodomes in the desert to simulate a sort of a, a Martian colony. And in the future, you're hoping to have a colony on Mars. So it is aspiration, I think, of all countries. And so it's showing that heritage, that you know, space is for everybody. And so um, it's role models. And then it's sort of relevance, because again, it's sort of, uh, if I do physics, where do I go? So it's showing that, you know, with physics, you can go anywhere and with other sciences too. But I think the final thing is that sense of wonder. And the fact we're finding planets out there going around other stars, which may in the future be potential homes for humanity. Is that sort of a, um, the way we're sort of doing things and understanding things? with our big telescopes. Uh, that sense of wonder, I think, really works too. So I like to talk about role models. I like to talk about sort of the relevance of science in our lives. But I like to show that wonder because science is doing amazing things. <laughs> Beautiful. And to walk deeper into that wonder, uh, you run these tours of the universe for students. And I'd love for you to let us know what 
do students experience? What do they take away from these trips? And what are your hopes for, for that future generation that are going through these tours? I'd like to show uh, our place in the universe is amazing. We live on a planet, you know, the third rock from the sun, as it's described. But we've got sort of um, seven other planets in our solar system. So I'd like to talk about just visiting some of those planets. Some, there's a, a debate going on in the UK at the moment as to whether we should be spending all our money uh, sort of looking at climate change and perhaps you know, curb the spending on space. But I would argue that by looking at the other planets in our solar system, for instance, we can get a better understanding of our own planet planet. If you look at the planet Mars, for instance, Mars used to have liquid water running over the surface. And we have various theories for why the atmosphere of Mars changed significantly. So by looking at other planets, we can get a better understanding of our own. Venus. Venus is the hottest planet in our solar system, even though it's not the planet closest to the sun. Because Venus has an atmosphere, which I think is 96% carbon dioxide. So it's looking at the impacts of that. And so we only have a small amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, but it's increasing. So by looking at the planets uh, and, and space looking at our own planet, we get a better understanding. So it's showing sort of the relevance of that and actually going sort of as a tour through the solar system and then out beyond to get an understanding of uh, our place in the universe. And I, I do love going out beyond because our local star is the sun. and um, But all the stars we see in the night sky are suns like our sun. And so if we travel out beyond our solar system and start visiting other stars, what we're discovering now is planets going around these stars and planets that sort of are, are very different from the planets in our own solar system but at the same time we're finding earth-like planets and we even have the ability now to in some cases look at the atmospheres of these exoplanets as we call them and we find water vapor in some of these atmospheres so we're also looking for signs of life out there so it's really just put sort of the our place in the universe in perspective there are 300 billion stars in our galaxy um, each one a sun like our sun but in the whole of the universe, there are about 200 billion galaxies. So we to say we're insignificant in the, in the universe is, is <laughs> a bit of a misrepresentation. But at the same time, our small planet that we sit on is part of something that's truly amazing. And as we look further and further out, we discover more and more of what's out there. And one day we might start making the footsteps to go out there and explore further um, physically rather than sending probes. So I, I think it's an exciting time. And I, I love to share that with as many people as possible. Incredible. And of course, your travels and your exploration led you to Dubai and Expo 2020 and to visit the constellation of pavilions that are out there in the world and at the Expo. And of course, to your point of that link between climate and space, the first week at the Expo was around climate and biodiversity. And that followed with Space Week. And I wonder what inspired you at the Expo? Actually, what did you learn? Uh, from your experience there? Unfortunately, my visit to the expo was far too short because there is so much to see and take in. And I loved sort of the different uh, sort of zones, sort of mobility, sustainability, opportunity. Um, I, I loved exploring that. But what I loved, what I truly loved, is going back to my Star Trek, my Star Trek days. It's the countries of the world coming together to explore, to debate, to work out how we can change things, how we can make things better, but better for everyone. And, and it was lovely that space was a, a, a themed week um, in that sort of exploration. But uh, my, my daughter and husband came out to the expo with me and we were going around to the different countries and getting our passport stamped and saying which country was that I don't know well, yeah, what do they do and sort of going into the pavilion thinking oh wow I never knew this and uh, I'm Nigerian and my husband is British and so of course we went to the UK pavilion and we went to the Nigerian pavilion so my daughter could get sort of, you know, a, a culture a, a culture blast from both but so just exploring and having all that laid out there but I do love the power of countries coming together so the expo just seemed immensely powerful bringing those countries together and having sort of serious debates and sort of a, a people meeting up and getting together. Because to me, for change to happen, that's what we need. And so the Expo is a fantastic example of that, bringing people together. <laughs> Incredible. And at the Expo, you spoke about the importance of collaborative science. And to ask you, how can everyday citizens collaborate with scientists to advance space exploration? Yes. 
So one of the exciting things at the moment is we're building bigger probes, we're getting bigger telescopes, and we're sort of getting more and more data. There's a space probe called Gaia, and it's doing a survey of over a billion stars in our galaxy, and it's producing a sort of a petabyte of data. So the problem is, with all this data, sometimes we don't have the capacity to process it all. And we can use AI and machine learning, but there's some things that machines just can't do, but humans can. And so my colleague on the sky at night is actually doing a project called Zooniverse, where they're getting sort of space data, they're getting all sorts of different types of data, archaeological data, and they're getting members of the general public to actually help process the data. And as a result, sort of general members of the public who've got some time on their hands in a computer can actually help process the data and help with the knowledge of humanity. And I think that's so exciting that everybody is a scientist. One of the things I love about astronomy is much of the big science today is, you know, the Large Hadron Collider or it's sort of, you know, maybe building a space probe. But with astronomy, everybody can get outside on a clear night and look up. So astronomy is the science for everyone. And now um, we can get that data and people can actually use the professional data that we get and process that and perhaps get their name on a paper. So yes, I think that's important. Science isn't just for the scientists. Science is something that every person can participate in and help sort of with human knowledge. So I I find these projects so exciting. (laughs) And yes, this is a celebration and this is the event and we'll be sort of celebrating space throughout the day. Now, one of the things that I'm interested in is something called archaeoastronomy. So it's sort of a smush between sort of um, archaeology and astronomy. But it's looking back through time and seeing how the different cultures across the world have been fascinated by space. And I think that's one of the things that unites us in an amazing way. If you look back in time, every culture across the world has looked up out there and wondered what's out there. So it's sort of a, uni- a, a uniting force between us. It's also quite interesting because it's sort of a, it's just something that sort of brings us together in so many different ways. Now, this is a, sort of just a part of a timeline, um, and it's the UNESCO Astronomy Timeline. And it shows across the different continents what monuments were being built to celebrate astronomy. And as I say, look across the world, everybody has looked up. That is incredibly exciting, and it speaks to the excitement of the the human spirit uh, for space throughout the ages. And you mentioned archaeological data. And of course, at the Expo, you spoke a little bit to the field of archaeoastronomy. Now, can you tell us what that is? And maybe what are some specific cultural moments throughout history that have happened that relate to space that particularly stand out to you? Gosh, so there's so many. So, um, Archaeoastronomy is like a sort of the archaeology of astronomy. And it's looking, um, sometimes I like to call it, you know, who knew what when. Um, growing up in the UK, I think I often got the impression that astronomy was sort of just put together by, you know, Greek guys, you know, wearing togas, you know, in Greece, you know, looking up at the sky. But of course, astronomy is so much wider than that. In the Arabic world, um, the astrolabes, uh, these are beautiful instruments and they are sort of beautifully ornate. And they are used to sort of look at a sunrise, sunset, look at how the stars are traversing across the sky. So they're works of art, but they're also works of science as well. So um, then if you go to sort of India, they have amazing, um, in somewhere called Jodhpur, they have an observatory, but it's an observatory that was built before we actually started using telescopes for astronomy. And so you can see all these instruments, which are looking at how stars cross against the sky. And by measuring them accurately, they produce star maps and sort of get a better understanding of our place in the universe. Um, if you look at sort of uh, South America, sort of a, a temples, huge temples built, and um, it's funny, they had a good understanding that, you know, the earth was round and they actually sort of built a base in, I think, Ecuador because they knew it was close to the equator. But if you look at some of their monuments, they have 360 uh, steps going up because they knew there were about 365 um, days in the year. So they actually sort of uh, built the astronomy into their structures. Uh, uh, in Africa, there's a, a stone circle, which is, I think is um, about sort of 7,000, maybe 9,000 years old. It's in Nabda Playa in the Namibian desert. And this is one of the oldest stone circles in the the world. And it's on African soil. So if we look across the world, everybody has looked up, everybody has wondered. In in Australia, uh, the Aboriginals came up with sort of um, creation stories, looking up at the night sky and working out how the the whole 
world was created, how the universe was created. So everybody has looked up. And I love to tap into that, to show that astronomy is for everyone. But at the same time, we need to collaborate today, but also we need to collaborate tomorrow. Uh, I have a fear that the drive for space is a big one, that the space industry is booming across the world, but it's booming more in some places than others. And I don't want some countries to be left behind. And I think the United Nations is working on this to make sure that everybody has a, that, that foothold in space. So there aren't the sort of the haves and the have-nots again, but everybody has a sort of the opportunity to utilise space for the good of all humanity. So it's a, an interesting time. But yes, archaeoastronomy just shows that we all have roots out there. We all have that desire to understand what's going on. And of course, there's new countries also entering into this space. Uh, excuse the pun. So of course, you mentioned UAE's Hope Mars mission. You know, when you see missions like that, what gives you hope when you see new countries, new programs really wanting to invest in space, really also not to serve just for outward exploration, but really to understand our place universe better and also to serve for really ensuring a flourishing Earth. It does give me hope, hope in so many different ways. I think at the birth of the space era, I have this idea that there's been three eras of space. And the first era of space I call confrontation, because first of all, it was to try and get missiles across the world without sort of having to engage. So it came out of confrontation after the Second World War. And then there was the Cold War, and it was sort of the space race with the USSR and America sort of trying to get the firsts in space and try and get people to the moon. So so um, there was lots of confrontation, but now I think we're in an era of collaboration where people are working together and you get formation of the European Space Agency, um, the Japanese Space Agency working with NASA, working with the European Space Agency, people pooling resources to get a better understanding of how we can utilise space. But the third era is commercialisation. But I think the fact that we are collaborating is so important because and that's what makes the world a better place. Space has a way of uniting people. I always like to say, you know, from space you don't see the barriers. And so I think it is. it does bring me hope. And also, one of the things is, in the past, it was sort of the usual suspects. There were only a few people. So it was the USSR, it was the Americans. It was only a few big players. But now more and more people are seeing space as the way of the future. And so you have sort of the, the, the amazing program in the UAE. You have the ISRO, the Indian Space Agency, JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. So it's not just one or two countries now. It is more of a global effort and more of a global collaboration. So I'm very much heartened on that. Um, my her parents are from Nigeria. And a few years ago, I went out to Nigeria and was looking at their space program. So more and more countries are getting on board. Um, I'd like to say the space train, but it's collaboration, I think, that really works and brings us together. Just as the expo does, it brings us together. I think space is now hopefully bringing people together too. And do you think that would ever lead to us being able to have a chance to live on Mars? And would you want to actually be one of those living on those outer colonies in space? <laughs> it's quite interesting because um, this a television programme, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's called Big Brother. And it was about sort of people living in a house and they get evicted. Well, uh, oh, actually, it was quite a few years ago, about 10 years ago, I made a little television programme um, called um, The Big Brother in Space. <laughs> And it was sort of 10 people going to Mars. And the two people who won the programme came back home, but everybody else lived out the rest of their days on Mars because we're trying to find ways of sort of using the Martian soil to grow crops and things like that. And in the programme, I nominate myself for eviction. So I spend the rest of my days on Mars. Now, I have to add, actually, you know, this must have been 12 years ago because it was before my daughter was born. And that's one thing that tethers me to Earth now. Um, if, if we're going to Mars, I want her to come with me and be able to come back so <laughs> but um, the idea of living on a moon base just uh, 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 is a dream of mine and, and actually a physical dream. I dreamt of living on a moon base and seeing the glorious beauty of Earth in front of me. So it's something I would love to do. But I want my daughter to get a bit older so as she can possibly come with me. <laughs> and I think that's the aspiration for many, many people across the world. And uh, yes, I would love to live on one of those colonies. And yes, when I'm a, a little older, maybe retire to Mars and spend my final days living out on the Mars surface. <laughs> Please sign me up to that retirement plan as well. Um, <laughs> You're coming too. Perfect. <laughs> we need um, broadcasters to tell of the experience. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go for the Big Brother experiment. I think I'd have a, a, calmer, a calmer experience, maybe a different game show. Um, 
Brilliant. And, you know, you spoke about your daughter and I wonder what is a message that you have maybe for parents, for children who are either interested themselves to get into this space or a parent that is interested in supporting their their children to do so? What advice would you give? It's quite interesting for me because I travel around the world and I often take my husband and daughter with me and people often say, oh, do you want your daughter to be a scientist? And I say, not really. I just want her to find something that makes her heart sing. For me, it was space and astronomy and all that. I want her to find her thing that makes her excited. And so um, uh, and so uh, I think as a parent, what I want to do is nurture my daughter's natural talent. Now, one of the challenges is finding out what that natural talent is. So exposing them to lots of different things and they can experience stuff but if there is someone who's that way inclined who's has stars in their eyes and then I think it's sort of to encourage them but not necessarily in sciences many people think to work in the space industry you need to be a scientist you need to be an engineer but of course space is an industry so we have lawyers we have PR we have sort of broadcast we have journalism we have so many different things that, that space sort of embraces so I think virtually anything that anyone is doing could lead to a career in space and so if they have that desire for space, then sort of encourage them in anything they're doing, but show them that there's a path that they can actually utilise it to further the space industry. Because I meet many um, sort of people who come and say, oh, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to do uh, work in the space industry, but, you know, I'm not very good at science or I can't do maths. That doesn't matter. The space industry embraces everybody. And I think it's getting more and more important for the future. So we need sort of the next generation of sort of space practitioners coming through. So yes, if they're that way inclined, I think there's definitely a role for them out there. Incredible. Thank you so much for making our hearts sing. And I'm sure this conversation has planted the seed for that exploration for so many who are listening to this. Thank you so much, Dr. Maggie, for your your time, your breath, your inspiration. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for your amazing questions. I, I, <laughs> I, I talk a lot, but um, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> Is there anything that you know particularly stood out for you, whether it's to the expo, something that's kind of burning or exciting you for the next of a couple of months that you'd like to touch upon? Well, the only thing I'd say is if you get the opportunity to go to the expo, do go. Because it just, ah, just walking under the structures, visiting the pavilions. Uh, and, and at night, I love the dome and uh, with the sort of uh, the different animations. There's something there for everyone. And so it is a glorious experience. And I was so glad that I took my, um, I had to get my daughter special permission to leave school for a day to come. And it was so worth it. So yes, I would recommend it to everyone. And, and I just love the idea behind the expo, bringing people of the world together. You can't get better than that if you ask me. <laughs> people and Planet is an official podcast of Expo 2020 Dubai, creating a sustainable future for our planet together. Learn more by visiting virtualexpodubai.com or searching Program for People and Planet. People and Planet is produced by Kerning Cultures Network. Episodes are released every second Monday. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoyed the show, share it with your friends and leave us a review.